The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. In Genesis chapter 49, we read about Jacob calling his sons to his side, to his bedside, as he is about to give up the ghost. And he gives them some blessings and he, he gives them some prophecies of their future. And he talks to each one of them individually. And down beginning in verse 8, he begins to talk to Judah, his son who was not the firstborn, but the one through whom the kingly line would come. And in verse 10 of this discourse with Judah, he makes this statement. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Lord being my helper tonight, I want to go through this verse and indeed most of this passage involving Jacob's prophecy to his son Judah. And I think we're going to see some very sweet, rich truths from this prophecy, which indeed it is a prophecy until Shiloh come. That's a sweet um, passage, a sweet clause there that gives us some anticipation and some hope. Until Shiloh come. This is a clear prophecy about the coming Messiah. And, and, and this is forecasting his ultimate birth here and life in the flesh on this place that we call earth, this graveyard that is indeed the planet earth. And the things that we can learn from this, I believe, will be sweet to us as children of God who understand the glories of the grace of God. So first of all, let's look at it. Notice in verse 10, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, the scepter. The idea here is of a kingly line. The scepter is a symbol of of royalty it's the symbol of power that a king would bear a king would have a scepter if he was indeed a king in that day he would sit on the throne and he would have a scepter that would show forth his authority and what Jacob is telling here he's saying to all of his children specifically to Judah that it will be through Judah that the kingly line will come they don't have kings right now Right now, they're just a bunch of tribes that are a fam- or family, really, right now. And they're going to become the tribes of Israel. But ultimately, you know, there will be a unified kingdom for a short period of time and then a divided kingdom for several centuries. But there will be kings who will sit on the throne of David. We know that Saul was the first king of, of Judah, the king of Israel. He was the first one that was raised up as a king. And he... Uh, he is not of the line of Judah. He was of the line of Benjamin. But uh, uh, I, I want to point out something to you over in the book of Hosea. Uh, and you recall, I don't want to get into, too far into the weeds here, but you remember how that Saul became king? Saul became king because the children of Israel clamored for a king. They, they went to uh, uh, the prophet Samuel and said, we want to be like the nations. We want a king. Set us up a king. And Samuel told them they didn't need a king. They should just follow the Lord. But they said, no, we want a king. So Hosea tells us this over in Hosea chapter 13 in verse uh, 11. He says, I gave thee a king in mine anger and took him away in my wrath. I believe that's a direct reference to Saul. 
He gave them a king. He gave them what they asked for. You know, we often hear this, uh, the, the phrase, be careful what you ask for. You might get it. They asked for a king, and they got a king. Now, now let me make it clear. God did not call Saul to run off the tracks of righteousness. Saul did that on his own. In fact, there was a time when King Saul was a righteous, good king. In fact, uh, Samuel later references it in, in, in admonishing him and taking the kingship from him. He said, when you were little in your own eyes, God blessed you. You know, that's a pretty clear admonition to us, is it not? Uh, I tell you, when, you know when God will bless you? It won't be when you're lifted up in pride. It'll be when you're little in your own eyes. In fact, when they went to crown Saul king, he, they found him hiding among the stuff. <laughs> he was hiding because he, he obviously didn't think he was worthy of doing it. But later on, he became lifted up with pride. And all the things that Saul did were on him, not on God. But you know the trouble they got into. And he ended up chasing David all over the Judean hillsides there. And ultimately, David replaced him as king. So ultimately, David was the king, and he was of the kingly line. You, you may recall that in the 16th chapter, I believe it is, of 1 Samuel, uh, even while Saul sat on the throne, Samuel was sent to Jesse, and he anointed David king. The truth of the matter is, is that David was the king before he sat on the throne. He was already anointed. All that time he was running, being chased by Saul, in God's eyes, he was already the king. And Jacob here says that the kingly line will come through you, Judah, because the scepter will not depart from you until a certain point of time. You can, I'm not going to turn there, but I encourage you sometime to turn to the first chapter of Matthew and the third chapter of Luke. And both of those give the genealogy of Christ. Joseph's lineage is in Matthew 1, Mary's lineage is in Luke chapter 3, and guess what? They all go back through Judah. By the way, does that, not, does that not lend a little bit more uh, light upon so many encounters in the Scripture? Think about, think about the encounter between David and Goliath. Now, I get that's a, that's a wonderful children's story. That's something I heard when I was a child, and I love, I love the story of the little man beating the big man. And that's a great, a great story in any situation, you know. And we still use that today. We still notice how many things come from the Scripture. We still talk about a David and Goliath battle, don't we? That was, a, you know, sometimes in football. <laughs> if there's a, there's a low-ranked team playing a high-ranked team, we say, well, that's a David and Goliath battle. But the truth of the matter is the David and Goliath battle was more than just a little man beating a big man. It was actually the whole lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ was on the line. The whole purpose of God and salvation was laid there on the line in the valley of Elah when David, the little shepherd boy, came up against the great giant uh, Goliath. If David dies, salvation's over. <laughs> Think about how many times throughout history God providentially uh, uh, preserved a seed that would ultimately result in the birth of the Messiah. Think about Abraham and Sarah. God said, your seed is coming through Sarah, but Sarah was barren. And ultimately, Abraham had lost the ability because of his age to even father children. Oh, the, the godly line, the, the line of Messiah is about to die out, I guess. No, because God preserved it providentially. 
He opened Sarah's womb. There were so many situations like that. If you look down through the ages of history, and you'll see where God continued to preserve that line until Shiloh come, until Christ came. Because in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, I believe it is, is the first promise to Abraham where he says, In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Turn sometime over to Galatians chapter 3, and I believe it's verse 4, but don't hold me to that. But it says there the gospel was before preached to Abraham. You know what that, that statement about all nations of the earth being blessed in Abraham? That's the gospel message. You know, don't tell me that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament. There, came, there, there, there was this big controversy in the early church days uh, that where that one group promoted the idea that, well, the God of the Old Testament was, was, was really Satan. He was evil and wicked, and, and the God of the New Testament was God. No, God is God all throughout time. He's never not been God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, and in the Old Testament from the days of Adam and Eve, it had been forecasted by God that the Messiah was coming. He said to Eve, or he said to the serpent actually, about Eve, he said, I'll put enmity between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. You know, a head wound's fatal, isn't it? (laughs) A heel wound you can get over. A head wound is fatal. He bruised the heel of Christ on Calvary, but Christ bruised his head. He, He put death out of business. He slew the serpent there on Calvary. I know we still experience death. We still have problems and tragedies like we've talked about tonight, about some young person being killed or someone dying in an unexpected time and in an unexpected way. But praise God, God, he has put death out of business eternally. It still rains for a little while here, but one day he's going to put it under his feet because he's already defeated it. See, that was the gospel. He said, He said, all nations of the earth will be blessed in you, Abraham. And over in the book of Haggai, chapter 2, he talks about the desire of all nations will come. You know what he's talking about there? He's not talking about the desire of every single person in every single nation. But he tells us in Revelation that there's a people of God in every kindred and nation and tongue and tribe. And the desire of all kinds of people from every nation in the world is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God is speaking directly here to to David. And he says this. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, he said, When thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever you say well that's talking about solomon right no solomon's dead he's not sitting on the throne forever well it maybe it's talking about solomon's line of those that would sit physically on the throne in jerusalem well there's no throne in jerusalem today beloved that throne ended about the time of uh not too long i think a generation or two after josiah when the babylonians carried him captive and there never was another king that's of, of the Davidic line that sat up on the throne. And, and so what is he talking about? He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying that, uh, that there's a kingdom that I'm going to establish through your line. When the Messiah comes, and that kingdom will never end. You remember the first message that Jesus preached, and really the only message he ever really preached? He said, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Beloved, praise God, that kingdom. It's a kingdom that Daniel talked about in the ninth and 10th chapter of the book of Daniel. He said it will, it will last forever. The kingdom that the Lord Jesus Christ sits on will never end. It's existent today. Some people are looking for a kingdom to come somewhere down the road and to be here physically on this earth. But beloved, what I read about is a spiritual kingdom that Jesus Christ and John the Baptist both said is at hand. That didn't mean it's at hand, but there's 2,000 years between it. No, it's at hand. It's right here. And I'm establishing that kingdom. In the vi now, I realize that's a topic <laughs> that's way too big to preach about, <laughs> in one sermon at least. In one sense, the kingdom of God is every single child of God everywhere. But the sense in which I believe Jesus was talking about it was the visible aspect of that kingdom, which is the church of the living God. We are living in that kingdom today, beloved. Jesus Christ, Shiloh, was coming and he would be the last one to sit on the throne. Let me just say this. You can go back sometime and you can read about the history of the nation of Israel. And as we said, there was a time when David was ruling and reigning in Jerusalem and his descendants continued to do so until the Babylonian captivity. And from that point until the time of Christ, off and on, the people of Israel possessed the ability to govern themselves, off and on up through that time. But there came a time when Pompey Magnus, Pompey the Great, who was a great general in, as a contemporary of Julius Caesar, a rival of Ju Julius Caesar, came in and began and took over the country of Israel for the Romans and Roman domination it began in about 63 BC and so that by the time Jesus was being brought to trial and about to be executed by crucifixion we're told in John 18 and verse 31 that Pilate said to those Jews you go take him you go take him but they said it is not lawful for us to put any man to death what's happened here one of the one of the clearest uh portions of the power of any kingdom is the ability to execute its laws of any government any government that has any authority any government that has the scepter of power must have the ability to execute its own laws and if capital punishment is part of that which it was in the laws of the jews if they had the scepter still they would be able to execute any man that they wanted to but guess what by the time jesus came by the time Shiloh arrived, the scepter had departed. Notice what it said back in our text. It said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until, until. Notice, there's a point when the scepter will depart. And that point was when Shiloh came, until Shiloh comes. So, so you say, uh, you say to me, preacher, you're saying that Shiloh is Jesus. Why do you believe that Shiloh is Jesus? I think it's clear, both from the text and throughout the, the scriptures, that Shiloh, that he's referencing here, is the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Shiloh itself literally means tranquility or rest. And it's the same root word as Shalom. Shalom is the greeting still today in Israel. And it means peace. It means peace. And here it's used in a, in a noun form, it's, and it's pointing us to the one who will bring rest, the one who will bring peace. You remember what happened after God created the universe, 
After the first six days of creation, God rested, right? God, he didn't rest because he was tired. He didn't rest because he'd run out of energy. He rested because he was finished. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us that after he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the Father on high. You know why Jesus sat down? He sat down in rest, not because he was tired, but because he had finished. That's what he meant when he said in John 19 and verse 30, it is finished. He had completed the work. You know, I, I liked to always, when I was working on the farm, I'd like to rest in between before I got finished, you know. I, I'd, I'd sometimes get up in the chicken house away from daddy, you know, and I knew I had a job to do, but I was tired or I wanted to, you know, I, I just wanted to do something else and I'd just sit down and rest. And daddy'd come along and catch me and said, boy, get up. We don't rest till the job's done. <laughs> Too many times I did it and he didn't catch me. I got away with it. But, but here's the point. Daddy knew the principle that God was promoting to us, and that is you don't rest until the job is finished, but praise God he rested both at the end of creation and at the end of crucifixion. You know why? Because it was finished. He was finished. <laughs> That's why he sat down. And by the way, in this very passage here that we've read from, we find further support for the fact that Shiloh is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look back at verse 8, still here in Genesis chapter 49. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall, be the gathering of the, shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Notice what he's saying here. Look at, look at this idea. In, in verse 8, he says, your brethren are going to bow down to you. Now, I know this is, this is talking to Judah, but there's some great types and shadows here. He said, your brethren, thy father's children shall bow down before thee. And notice in verse 9, and, and, and couple that with verses 11 and 12, you have a vision here of a bloody lion crouched down over his prey. You see a lion, he says, he stooped down, he couched as a lion. You know, we're, there's a reason that the Lord Jesus Christ is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lion is the is the strongest of the beasts. He's, the, he's the, the king of the jungle, as we call him today. He, he, on, the, on the plains of Africa, there is none to challenge a healthy, full-grown lion. There's no challenging him. Here we see the Lord Jesus Christ compared to a lion. And notice it said that his, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. There's great symbolism here. This is a bloodied lion who has victoriously conquered and vanquished his foe. Notice also in verse 11, he says, Binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. <laughs> Sometime, well, let's just turn over there right quick. Over in Zechariah chapter 9, in verse, um, verse 9, I believe it is. Zechariah chapter 9, in verse 9, listen to this. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. You can turn over to Matthew chapter 21 and verse 5 and you're going to read about the Lord Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem on, on a, uh, upon the colt, the foal of an ass, and he is sitting there on that donkey as he rides in, and Matthew quotes this very verse. You see, in verse 11, Genesis chapter 49, he's already talking about this binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. By the way, there's a lot of symbolism there too. I don't have time to go into it tonight. Sometime I encourage you to go read in the book of Job. We read it last week or a couple of weeks ago. In the 11th chapter, I believe it is, in the 15th verse, when Zophar is talking to Job there, he says, Vain man would be wise, though he, born, though he be born like the wild ass's colt. Long story short, I'll just sum it up and say this. Man is like that colt. We're told in the 21st chapter of Matthew that Jesus mounted that colt, sat upon its back, and it was a foal upon which no man had ever sat. You ever thought about what would happen if you and I tried to sit on a donkey particularly, but any kind of animal like that, upon which a man had never sat? He'd never been broken. He'd never been, he'd never been tamed. <laughs> he'd throw us off. He'd throw us off. I don't care. There's no pre Every preacher in the world can browbeat and try to, uh, try to ride up on the, 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 the wild donkey's colts of this world, but only the Lord Jesus Christ can break one. I, I'm so thankful for that. I, that's another message. If I don't get off of that, I'm going to end up preaching it. So let's, uh, let's move on. <laughs> Why Shiloh? Why Shiloh? Why is this term used for the Lord Jesus Christ? I believe it's very simple. Because there is no peace between God and man since the Garden of Eden. There has been no peace without someone being an intercessor. You remember what Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 says? The carnal mind is enmity against God. And it, cannot be, it is not subject unto the law of God, neither indeed can be. In the fifth chapter of Romans, I'm just going to turn there and read this. This is too sweet to, to just try to quote or, or summarize. In the fifth chapter of Romans, in the... Um, um, the sixth verse, notice what he says. He says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's saying, you know, sometimes people will die. They'll lay down their lives for somebody who's a good person. But, but, but you never die, want to die for a bad person. But yet God died for us while we were yet sinners. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For Now look at this. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You know what the reference here is to? The fact that we were enemies with God. Now look, that's not, that's not just the reprobate, but all the elect were a little bit better, and they were able to, 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 to somehow 
engender favor with God. No, we were all as an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That's all of us, beloved. We are all together become unclean. None of us seek God. None of us desire God in the flesh. And yet when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God. How was it that we were reconciled to God? Was it because we got better? Was it because we got educated? Was it because some preacher preached to us and told us to pray a prayer? Was it because we made some decision in our lives? No, beloved. It was by the death of His Son. The death of His Son. And you know, there's no place in the Scripture that better expresses this, this idea and this event than Psalm 85 and verse 10. In Psalm 85 and verse 10, we read this. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Why do they call Jesus shallow? Because he's the bringer of peace. Notice this. Mercy and truth are met together. You know, I've worked in the judicial system most all, my, all of my career, actually in various capacities. And whenever, as a prosecutor, I would bring one before the bar of justice, and we would say, Judge, here is what he did. This is what he's pled guilty to. This is the punishment he deserves. If the judge imposed that punishment that he deserved, he could not also show mercy. And if he if he showed mercy to the one who deserved a different punishment than what he got, then he was not doing justice. Mercy and truth, the truth of what he did, uh, caught up with that man that was brought before the bar of justice, and, and he ought to suffer a certain punishment, but mercy uh, was given, and therefore truth was sacrificed, you see, if that happened. Same thing when it says righteousness and peace. You know, God is the ultimate righteousness. He's the holy of holies. He's, that's one of his greatest uh, 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 attributes is holiness. He cannot look upon sin so much so that he turned his back upon his son on the cross. And yet righteousness and peace kissed each other. There is no peace, God says, to the wicked. And we were of the wicked. And yet, righteousness and peace kissed each other. How? You can't have justice and mercy at the same time. You can't have righteousness and peace at the same time when it comes to man and God. So how in the world did this happen? It happened when the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross, suspended there between heaven and earth, the mediator between God and man. See, the mercy of God met the truth of grace and of the, of the wickedness of man. And grace covered all of the sins of every single one of his children. Righteousness and peace kissed each other on the cross of Calvary. That's why Shiloh is one of the most appropriate terms for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the bringer of peace. He's the bringer of rest. Finally tonight, notice the last little phrase in that verse 10 says the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come it's the Lord Jesus Christ as we said and unto him shall the gathering of the people be the idea here 
in that phrase, gathering of the people, is the idea of bringing together the nations in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It carries the idea of obedience. In verse 11 there, it's talking about binding his, uh, binding his foal unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. We've already said that, that a little donkey upon which never man has sat is not very peaceful. There's not very much peace you can bring to it. But the Lord Jesus Christ brought that colt on which never man had sat, and he, he sat upon him and rode him peacefully into Jerusalem. You see, this idea of obedience, this idea of the Lord breaking this little colt. Only Jesus can gather the little wild colts of this world and ride them in peace. And I want you to notice something else here. <laughs> notice it didn't say, unto him shall the people gather themselves. Did it say that? Unto him shall the people do what's necessary to come to him. No. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. He didn't say they would gather themselves. The idea here is passive. The term here is passive. It's the idea of being gathered. Who gathers the people? Shallow. Shiloh gathers the people. In John chapter 10 and verse 16, he said, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Notice he didn't say, they've got to get to me somehow, or you've got to go get to them to get them to come to me somehow. He said, them of this other fold, speaking of the Gentiles, he said, I must bring them. Who gathers the people? Shiloh gathers the people. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, it says that Christ hath once suffered for sins, a just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Praise God, he is the one that gathers his people. In John chapter 6 and verse 37, he says, All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me. Are they going to come under their own power? Are they going to come because they got smart enough or wise enough? Are they got preached to enough? No, he says in John 6, 44, No man can come unto me except the Father which has sent me draw him. But I will raise him up at the last day. You see, the gathering of the people is on the shoulders of Shiloh. It's not on your shoulders. And it's not on mine. And praise God for that. <laughs> There's a place, I believe it's in James chapter 4, where James tells us that friendship with the world is an enmity to God. If you'd be a friend of the world, you'll be an enemy of God. I'm not asking for a confession here. I don't want to ask you something about today even, but certainly this past week. Have you been a friend of the world this week? I have. I, I'm sorry to confess to you. I have. There's been things and ways that I've acted this week that have not shown me to be a friend of Shiloh, not shown me to be a friend of God, but to be a friend of the world, which makes me an enemy of God. I am so thankful that he didn't put my own gathering upon my shoulders. Because I'll tell you, there's days I'd come. Right now, I feel the Spirit of God. I don't, I don't feel like you could pry us apart with a wedge. I, I'm so thankful for the opportunities to come here to this church and to feel the Spirit of God abundant among us, the love flowing from breast to breast, the, the songs that are lifted up. Man, there's no way I could possibly uh, leave the Lord tomorrow. Surely tomorrow I'll get it all just right because I feel so close to Him tonight. Peter said, Lord, I don't care if, they, if I have to die with you. I will die with you. 
I feel like Peter right now. I don't think Peter was lying about that. I don't think he was working that up within himself. I think he really felt that way. Don't you feel sometimes in, in, in such close fellowship with the Lord that if they sent the magistrates down and the, and the sheriff down to arrest you and drag you off to be martyred on the, in the name of Christ, you'd gladly go singing Amazing Grace all the way. I feel that way sometimes. I feel that way right now. Oh, but I know myself. And I know Peter. I get Peter. It was just a few hours later that Peter, who was so staunch in his declaration of loyalty to Christ, that he was cursing and swearing as he warmed his hands by the coals of the world's fires. A child of God, I, I'm there so many times. Listen, I'm not proud of it. I'm not looking forward to it. I dread tomorrow got to get back out in the world i won't get to be here with you oh I, I i long this by the way that's why we need these days and these times because i need to be recharged because my goodness as bad as i am anyway how bad would i be in my actions and in my thoughts and in my lifestyle if i didn't have this church to come to and get recharged praise god he didn't put it on my shoulders See, the scepter that was given to Judah lasted until Christ. And Christ still bears the scepter. He's still the Lord of lords and King of kings. He still rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father. He is still the head of the church. He is still our Savior and our Lord. But I am poor and weak and worthless. I am a worm and no man, as the psalmist declared in Psalm 22. And I need to know that he has gathered me and that he hadn't left it to me to be gathered myself. Because if I were left to myself, it would be, it would be hopeless for me. There's no way for a wild man of this world be gathered in obedience to Christ unless Christ himself draws us, unless Christ himself gathers us. But praise God, Shiloh, the peacemaker, the one who brings rest, has come. And you know, that's why, as I said this morning, the world so much misunderstands the 11th chapter of Matthew sometimes. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, Beloved, that's not an invitation to a dead alien sinner to do something to get born again. That is a glorious invitation to a born-again child of God who is struggling in this world, who is carrying the burden of trying to, you know, like those, those Jews over there in the 10th chapter of Romans. He said, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is they might be saved. He said, for I bear them record, they have a zeal of God. You don't have a zeal of God if you're not born of God, you see. And by the way, it said a zeal of God. That is, that is from God. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. You know why you ought to trust him? Because he's done everything he said he would do. 
Sometimes we think about, you know, trust me, you know, trust me. People don't know me. I remember being in, in, in meeting with victims and, and having, you know, first time to, to be in their presence. And, and I'd say, you just have to trust me. They said, well, why should I trust you? I said, well, I don't, have, I don't have much of a track record with you. But if you'll watch and see, the proof will be in the pudding. Beloved, the proof is in the pudding for the Lord Jesus Christ. He has done everything he said he would do. And he's going to continue to do it. And that includes delivering us safe into his presence one day. Shiloh, the gatherer of the people, the one that was born as a babe and laid in that manger there in Bethlehem. Very God became very man, and he walked the dusty roads of this graveyard earth, and he, every step he took was a step toward Calvary. And he didn't get halfway up and say, I've had enough. He didn't say, you know what? That old brother Chris, he's just done too much this time. I've had my full fill of him. You ever been there where you say, oh, I've just taken too I can't take anymore. Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so has made me so mad. I can't take anymore. What if the Lord Jesus Christ had said that? <laughs> he took it all. And he went all the way up the Mount Calvary to die and put away our sins. And he accomplished that task. Praise God for the glorious salvation we have only in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.